Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think this idea that, like, everything that you do, especially when it comes to beauty, tattoos, your aesthetic, whatever that is, has to be for something or someone else. I'm just like, none of this is for, for whoever this arbitrary person is supposed to be. Hello and welcome back to Beautiful Lives, the podcast where I, Madeleine Spencer, talk to guests about their lives and how the very many different elements of appearance, both their own and other people's, have impacted them. Today, I'm joined by the award-winning journalist and author, Puerna Bell. The topics Puerna's covered in her work are vast, spanning everything from mental health to colorism, and she's written for Red, Stylist, The Guardian, Grazia, and plenty of others, as well as having worked as the executive editor and global lifestyle head for The Huffington Post. Puerna's also written two books. Ariana Huffington said of her first, Chase the Rainbow, that everyone must read this book. Her second, In Search of Silence, is a moving and extremely honest account of Purna's life after her husband, Rob's death by suicide. Purna joins me today to talk about some of the themes covered in that book and a handful of the appearance-related elements to her life, including her tattoos, how intuitive eating has become a healthy way for her to approach food, and her growing love for powerlifting. Here's Purna. So I'm here with Purna Bell. Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's Purna. Yeah, oh my god, perfect. Oh, well, yeah. um, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start, I always start in the childhood, so we'll start in your childhood. Um, so you grew up in Kent. I did. So I grew up in actually several places uh, mm. around Kent. So um, born in Maidstone um, and till I was about seven and we then moved to India for about five years and then mm-hmm. moved back to Kent after that. Okay. Um, I would say my family, 2.4 children, you mm-hmm. know, parents, um, relatively, <laughs> relatively well-behaved parents. Um, in terms of? Just in terms of their, we have a really, really good relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've always been a very, you know, like this harbour of safety. And, but at the same time, as we kind of work on our relationship together, they are just, um, they're actually having a lot of fun at the moment and they're retired and they just, I think they stay up later than I do and they have a better social life than I do. Um, Mm. but I'm really glad that they're actually enjoying themselves. Yeah. Mm. That's great. It's good to see also when people get older and they're enjoying themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it does have an impact because when we, um, when my sister and I look at pictures of my mum, like next to the rest of our relatives, you know, no offense to the rest of our relatives, but like she looks about like... 10 to 20 years younger than them completely yeah i mm. see this a lot when people are enjoying their lives they look mm. infused with life and if you absolutely. retreat from it yeah, you start yeah. to look quite stale and old yes sort of yeah, yeah absolutely tell me about your parents and when you were younger and how what the culture around beauty was in your household um the culture around beauty i remember when I was little, so this would have been about eight or nine, um, we had moved to a new apartment and things were kind of getting fitted out in the apartment. Mm-hmm. 
Was and this I, in India? This was in India, yeah. yeah. And I remember that, you know, my mum was very specific about having the dressing table and about having mirrors and that being, you know, this place where she would go and do her makeup. And I think when she wasn't mm-hmm. using it, you know, it was this place that I would just love to sit yeah. and kind of look at her makeup and you know, just, I guess, not necessarily, I wouldn't really use it because I think I was too scared at that age, but definitely, you know, it just seemed like the seat of power in which you just sort of sit there and then just something magical would happen and it would be a time that would just be for her. And we, I was very lucky at the time. I mean, um, both of my grandmothers, unfortunately, have passed away now, but one of my grandmothers, my, um, my father's mother, you know, was this very, um, she was kind of known for her beauty and she was very much the type of person who, you know, if you looked into her bedroom, it was a complete jumble of clothes, just looked like an absolute box of nightmares. But then she would somehow like go in there and then she would just emerge, you know, looking absolutely immaculate. And one thing that we remembered about her was this just very strong, um, bright red lipstick, mm-hmm. you know, and she she always had that lipstick on, like even towards the end when she had quite um, severe dementia. And I think, um, and she'd had these like, you know, massive like oversized, like vintage like sunglasses on. And I mm-hmm. think that growing up, my idea of beauty was very much, you know, we have quite strong women in our family. Like it was very much this idea of strong women who also, you know, did dabble in makeup and and did look after themselves Mm. to a certain degree. Um, But also there is this, there is this weird kind of like undertone to some of it in that, you know, my mum like had actually really, when I, when I kind of found out more about it now, quite a limited Mm -hmm. um, understanding about makeup, you know, Mm -hmm. and actually didn't really use a whole load of products and so on. But I think that growing up, I just came up with the idea that beauty or um, or makeup was something that was just this wonderful, intoxicating thing that you could experiment with. Um, it was something, you know, you knew that you couldn't really use um, at a young age. I mean, I come from a South Asian household. It's not really usual to let your kids or even really teenagers, to be honest, um, dabble a lot in makeup. Like it's kind of one of those things that once you get to a certain age, you can use it. Um, but at the same time... Yeah, so I had this like very strong idea of beauty, but at the same time, there was this uh, part of me that knew I couldn't really use makeup yet, but I kind of did it behind my mother's back anyway. Okay. Did she ever catch you in it? <laughs> no, no. She caught my sister, who was... At, she's My sister's four years older than me. Hmm. She was so shit at, like, trying to get away with anything naughty. So, like, so what happened was is that I would just observe, you know, when she'd just clonk into some situation... Because she was just really inept at lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I think she did kind of borrow or steal my mum's lipstick. And then I think uh, what happened was my mum sort of surprised us and picked us up from school, you know, after school. Okay. And saw my sister with this lipstick on and, oh my God, the shit hit the fan that day. Did it? Yeah. And so <laughs> I was just, I kind of like, you know, um, just like lurking in the background, like just taking notes going, okay, that's not, that's what to do. That's not mm. what to do. Mm. So no, I don't think, I, I never, I never got in trouble around it and I I was never caught with it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you were into it then. Totally. I mean, I think that um, it wasn't really my mum's makeup, to be honest. Like, because I think that I was getting into quite alternative music at the age of um, about 13. Yes. And so my aesthetic of what I wanted my makeup um, to look like was Mm. not my mum's. Like, my mum's was kind of... You know, there's this very like um, stereotypical kind of like slightly dull shade of red, 
that I think a lot of South Asian women used to wear at that point in time. You know, mm-hmm. there was like a little bit of blusher, um, maybe some mascara, yeah. and then that was it. Like for me, I was like full on, I want eyeliner, I want all the eyeshadow in mm-hmm. the world, and then basically very kind of nude lips. When you say alternative music as well, mm. there's, there is a very strong look that goes with that. Mm. and you, It's like assimilating to a you know, movement. You yes. just want to yeah. look a certain way to go with yeah. the music. But that whole culture of wanting to be seen to like that music is almost as important as the music itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're, especially when you're that age, you know, you tell yourself that you're non-conformist, that, you know, you don't look like... Um, I guess like some of the girls, you know, the popular girls in school that were mm-hmm. very um, pretty, yeah. I would say, would go for like pretty kind of makeup. And you really um, draw a lot of strength from that. Then you grow up and you're like, oh, yeah, like if everyone in our group dresses the same, yeah. that's kind of conforming, mm-hmm. but just to a different um, subset of culture. Yeah. Tell me about skin colour then. So you touched on it saying that there weren't the colours that you wanted when you were going to be. Mm. How did that make you feel? I, th- I think as a as a South Asian woman, and actually not just, you know, there are um, people who come from backgrounds in Africa and like other places around in Asia, around the world, have similar experiences to this. But the idea of colorism is, you know, it's a really difficult one. And it's it's something that you try and explain to, you know, let's say your white friends in school and it's or even as you're growing up. And it's just quite a difficult thing to understand because it's not necessarily just that you live in a Western country and there just isn't, let's say, enough variety of beauty products around, which, to be fair, there were not enough beauty Mm -hmm. products around at that time and things have gotten a lot better and you know I could very easily walk into a shop and hope to get something that roughly matches my skin Mm. but so you've kind of got this on the one hand you know your sense of beauty or your actual literal beauty is completely invisible because it's just not catered to and um and then you open up magazines and mm. there are there are no people that look like you and neither, you know, are there particularly that many people on TV. And at the same time, the hardest part of all of this is your own cultural background is not a safe place for you when it comes to your own skin colour. Because the, the idea of colourism is basically it's prejudice against um, shades of skin colour uh, within your own race or your own um, cultural background. So, for example, um, dark skin is considered to be inferior. It is considered to be ugly. Fair skin is something that you have to strive towards. And that is within, um, you know, being whether you are Indian, whether you're Sri Lankan, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, whatever, that mm-hmm. is some that is unfortunately a horrible thing that we all share. Mm-hmm. So as a young girl, when you're coming up, you're kind of getting it from all sides. You know, Mm. you're on the one hand, um, if you go out in the sun and you happen to get a couple of shades darker, it is something that, you know, family members will comment upon. It Mm -hmm. is not something that is commented upon in a nice way. And then you have to go out into the rest of the world and and your beauty isn't even there. So like you're kind of suspended in the middle of nowhere, you know, I would say in the last like three to four years, mm. um, and this is primarily because of Instagram, is that I do really feel this real kind of rejuvenation around makeup and around fashion because it is so much easier for me to access um, images and lifestyles of other people that look like me. Yeah. You know, so actually, 
yes, it would be really lovely if magazines, you know, just had a slightly more diverse representation and yeah. outlook. But quite frankly, I don't need them. I was going to say the great thing about Instagram as yeah. well is it's given so much power to people now. <laughs> absolutely. And taken it away from people who are making those decisions. So it yeah. proves that it's absolutely necessary because there's so many followers for people who are representing yes. all kinds of different, you know, aesthetics and different... Yeah beliefs and things like that so yeah. it's really given that power back yeah way. i mean mm, <laughs> to some extent <laughs> to some extent i mean yeah. some, some people definitely uh you know this there are these ongoing massive conversations about instagram and uh you know just i think uh ethics around gifted products yes. and all of that stuff but I think that generally um, you, well, I, I at least tend to have a very strong idea of who mm. I want to follow and why. Yeah, you said about social media in your book, hang on, I've, I've pulled out, I've really nerdly put a bunch of tabs in it, I've, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. But you said, um, there's an old saying, don't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. While social media feels a lot of the yard measuring of perfection at a much more frequent and intense pace, it's always existed. And I think when you said that, I really thought to myself, it's absolutely true, because the feelings <laughs> I feel when I look at someone's um, aspirational account mm. are the same things I used to feel when I'd look at girls walking past me on Bond Street or wherever and think oh I, I could yeah. never look like that or I could never afford that or whatever it was so actually it just kind of means that it's in your house rather mm. than just outside absolutely I yeah. mean I remember when I was at school um I don't fraternise with children now, so I don't really know yeah. what the present day version of this will be. Yeah. But I just remember, you know, when you're talking about getting ready for the weekend or mm. um, I guess like what clothes you want to buy or so on, or just like going to the shops with your mates and figuring out who wants to buy what. Yeah. And there was one friend amongst us, you know, whose parents were just like, they were wealthy. You know, yeah. they like, it was not a consideration for her. Like if she wanted something she would ask for it and she would get it. And so I remember just feeling quite envious of her mm. and just thinking, you know, God, I really wonder what that would be like. I mean, don't get me wrong. My parents, you know, looked after me and my mm. sister. You know, we got pocket money. But it was very much a case of if you wanted something, you kind of had to earn it. So mm. I you know, had a Saturday job, I think from the time it was legal for me to have a Saturday job. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I would get pocket money, but I just don't, it wasn't ever really, you know, oodles and oodles that you could just kind of like splurge at the shops. Mm -hmm. So when I had my eye on an outfit, you know, I would work towards getting that outfit. It's yeah. not just like it would instantly land on my bed, you know, mm -hmm. but this, I just remember that comparison of just going to this friend's house and just seeing all the stuff she had. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I really wanted to play guitar. And I remember like she got an electric guitar before I could get one for Christmas. <laughs> and she, I don't think she even played that fucking guitar. And mm -hmm. I just remember thinking, oh my God, you know, if only, if only I had this, mm -hmm. if only I had that, mm -hmm. then my life would be perfect. And of course it's absolute nonsense. You also say the same about love though in your book. Yes. That you felt that if you had the perfect romantic love, that everything mm. would be absolutely, I mean, when you were younger, you know, like yeah, when you were yeah. teens. And there is that, element of whimsical fantasy life in every yeah. uh, in many children yeah it? i mean yeah. i think that it's really not knowing how to register and process your discontent about yeah. things um and i think it's just also when you're that age and arguably like even present day it's just being able to know how to process failure so mm. if there is a boy that does not like you it isn't necessarily because you have failed at it. It just could be there are other reasons why he doesn't like you and yeah. why it isn't working out. 
But I think because that's a mirror to things that you might perceive as being deficit within yourself, Mm -hmm. that's when it turns into this thing of, oh, well, but, you know, if only he did like me, if only this happened, then those flaws that you perceive would fix themselves, which, of course, is not the case at all. It's also the same as you reference loneliness. Loneliness. Mm. And there is that thing where you think you can give away, you can solve loneliness and just meeting this counterpoint and it yeah. will go away. Yeah. And actually it's something you sort of have to get rid of yourself. It's always in you if yeah. you haven't dealt with it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of loneliness just fascinates me mm. um, or just being alone as mm. well and how those two things run concurrently alongside each other because I really had that strong belief that, you know, that if I, when I met the person um, who was my soulmate, uh, (laughs) then I wouldn't feel lonely again. And then everything would kind of be fixed and, you know, and I wouldn't feel like there was this thing that was lacking in me. And I think that when you're with someone who is, you know, completely and utterly your other half, I think that they add to your life in a way that is completely different that I don't think really you expect in a very positive, you know, in a very, very positive way. But because you kind of also are getting into it because you think that, you know, you don't want to be alone, this, that and the other, it also doesn't fix, it doesn't fix some of the things that you go into expecting to fix. And I just think that the idea of... um, of being understood really which I guess is what all of us just want I mean that's such a primary Mm -hmm. focus for so many of us of being understood is just the um when you are in a relationship where you cannot understand the other person um or there is a part of your experience that they cannot understand I personally I feel for me that is where the most acute sense of loneliness can be it's that thing of being right next to Mm. someone Yes. And not with them. But a million miles away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your tattoos. (laughs) What would you like to know? I would like to know, you talk about getting your first one in a sort of act of, I'm getting a tattoo and that's it. Oh, Kev's tattoo (laughs) parlour. Which didn't have a door, it had like a beaded curtain. It had a beaded curtain, Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. So, I... I don't know why I get tattoos. Like, I have tried to unpick the reason and I don't have a ready-made, neat idea. How many do you have? There's, like, two winking at me. Uh, so it's two... Well, these are actually four separate ones linked together. Okay. Five, six, seven, eight, eight. Are they all patterns? Uh, some are, some aren't. But I just knew that when I turned 17, mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted a tattoo and I knew that... Um, I didn't want to wait until I was 18. It was very immediate. And so I asked one of my friends to come along with me. And we went to this tattoo parlour and, you know, and I thought everything was going really well because, I, I, unfortunately, I looked very young at that age. Right. And they are, and I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to get my tattoo and they're <laughs> not going to ask for ID. And then just before we were about to go in, um, they said, oh, by the way, do you have any ID? And I was like, no. And I'm really, really glad because the tattoo I chose was hideous what was it it was a skull with spider's legs sticking out of it it was honestly it was it was gross but then so we kind of went to like this was in the days before phones and google so we were like okay where's the next um tattoo parlor which was kev's tattoo parlor kev was like 
this huge guy who just did not give a shit about ID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked the thing I could afford. For so you literally went in and picked literally off- went right, okay. picked it off a sheet. Yeah. It was twenty eight pounds. It was a Celtic triangle. Kev did this tattoo. It was. I remember just loving it. I loved the fact that I had this tattoo that my parents knew nothing about. Where was it? It was on my hip. Right. And it was like this amazing thing. And then about seven days into having this tattoo, my mum was like, what is, what's that on your hip? And I just said, oh, it's just a temporary transfer. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Did she say it? Did she cough she, she didn't. But oh. I think that, I think she didn't want to know. Yeah. And then over the years, I just kind of had ones here and there. And I have covered up te- uh, Kev's hideous tattoo with yeah. a lotus okay. since then. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I couldn't explain to you why. I think the, uh, the tattoos on my forearms... Um, they're done by a lady called Dominique Holmes and mm. I just really like the pattern. They don't have any particular meaning to them. Yeah, they're stunning. What they do yeah. is, thank you, they anchor me to how I felt or a particular achievement in my life mm. versus um, this design that very specifically means something. But yeah. I've got two floral pieces on my, like one on my right ribcage and mm. then one on the left. Do you find that it's had an effect on how you feel about your body? I had this conversation with my dad after he was horrified uh, last year about one of my tattoos. I don't know how to break it to him that I've got a new one since then. But (laughs) he said, you know, because I think he thought that these were all like very recent and part of some like, I don't know, quarter life, midlife crisis or whatever. And I said, look, dad, I had my first tattoo when I was 17. And then, but this is what I mean in that I, I couldn't quite work out why I get them done. And mm. I think the reason why, or why I got it done when I was 17 and why I continue to get them done mm. is because really it's an assertion of authority and ownership over my own body. I am very lucky that thus far, um, you know, I have never really had to go through anything that makes me question that otherwise. Mm-hmm. But for me, it really is this kind of, um, this way of saying that, this is my body. This is what I choose to put on it. And when I go through the world and it looks like the way that it does look like, regardless of like whatever size or shape I'm at, mm-hmm. that's something that I chose for myself, you yeah. know? Yeah. Other people may not understand it. Like the thing that like really grinds my gears is when someone like kind of gives me this backhanded compliment and goes, oh, you know, I don't really like tattoos, but I like yours. And it's like, mm-hmm. firstly... Thanks, but you didn't have to say the beginning part of it. Secondly, it's a fucking tattoo. Like I can't rub it out. If yeah. you're if the if you were to say you didn't like them, mm-hmm. like I can't alter that. And also it's not for you. Like I think this idea that like everything that you do, especially when it comes to beauty, tattoos, your aesthetic, whatever that is, has to be for something or someone else. I'm just like none of this is for, for whoever this arbitrary person is supposed to be. I feel like that about makeup too, though. Sometimes yeah. people go, oh, you know, um, I prefer it when you don't wear red lipstick. I prefer... And it's like, I don't care. Yeah. I've just, my whole face I do for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. It's like, remind me of the time that I asked for a poll about yeah. your opinion about what I put on my yeah, face. what looks better on me. I don't care. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it kind of drives you mad sometimes. I definitely think with tattoos, like, there's this weird moralising judgement, which mm. I realise, you know, is a pre-existing idea. But yeah. it's like, you're... Because you don't like tattoos, that doesn't make you a better person. Like, it's not that you have better taste or judgment or whatever it might be. You just, that's not for you. And that's okay because it doesn't have to be on you. Okay, let's move forward in your timeline to doing internships. 
And um, your internship where you were working, is it in a newspaper, South um, Asian newspaper? Yes, yeah. Okay, and you're working there, and I want to know <laughs> how you felt at the time about your aspirations to be a writer, because you've said that your parents were really great at letting you, you know, not go into yeah. a doctor-dentist sort of job. But whether you were worried at that point, because it's scary when you're doing internships and you realise how little everyone earns, and how hard you have to work, and how you looked as well, whether your look had changed. I'll ask the e- answer the easiest one first. In yes. terms of how my look had changed, um, I don't think that I dressed particularly well. Uh-huh. And I don't feel... When I look back at that era, mm. I was very much transitioning from uni student to, you know, uh, working in an office and also had this kind of contrarian part of me that I developed when I was a teenager which was you know take me or leave me because I like this is this is how I am and I don't really want to dress smart and I don't want to do this and I don't want to put a suit on or whatever Mm -hmm. so to be I didn't really make an effort and when I look at how I dressed back in the day I just I to be honest it really makes me cringe that I just didn't make more of an effort however (laughs) when I left university I think I couldn't quite decide whether I wanted to go in... I always knew I was going to be a writer. That mm-hmm. was, you know, un, undeniable. But I didn't know if I wanted to go into journalism. I didn't know if I wanted to dabble in TV presenting. And those were the two things that were kind of fighting for attention at that mm-hmm. time. I think when I realised how much it would take to focus on TV presenting mm-hmm. and the fact that I didn't really enjoy it that much, right. I just thought, well, I love writing and mm-hmm. this is the thing that I want to do. And and it so happened that about a, a month into doing some horrendous like telesales job, um, a friend of a friend said, we've got this internship yep. at this newspaper. Do you want to come? Yeah. But I wasn't really part of that set. Like, I didn't really have journalism buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really make friends on my course. Like, everyone I knew, friends-wise, were medics. What have you been studying? English. Right. Where? Um, at QMW. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, all of my friends were medics. Um, I didn't really write for the uni newspaper or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, and had just kind of not checked out. But, like, I just w- had a lot of fun at university and did my studies, and that was kind of it. I didn't really think about it beyond that. So when I joined this place, I didn't think about... I hadn't applied to loads of places for internships. Mm. Um, I just thought, oh, my God, okay, well, this is great. Like, these guys want to give me a chance. Mm. Um, And also, to be quite fair, like, none of the mainstream publications seemed particularly accessible Mm -hmm. at that time. So when these guys, like, said I could do some uh, interning there, I just thought, great. Um, But it was terrible it was just like the amount of money that when it turned into a full-time job the amount of money that that paid I I don't really know how I survived in it well I do know how I survived on it my overdraft uh was very impressive Mm -hmm. and continued to be for many years you talk about money a bit in the book Mm. and I was saying to you before we started recording that I'm I was delighted to read that because people shy Mm. away from money so much and particularly because you're quite honest about the fact that you're weren't great at managing money yeah can you talk a little bit about how your attitudes or money have changed over the years it's very recent and actually I literally am talking about matter of months so for most of my working career um I would say the majority of it um like a lot of journalists I just didn't earn very much money yeah um 
especially being a woman, I did not negotiate for pay. Mm -hmm. I took whatever was given to me. I felt like I should be grateful to have a job, let alone have any money. Mm -hmm. And I think when things changed for me was when I joined, um, when I, my last permanent role, which was being at HuffPost, where we actually had a really good HR team and I actually had good people around me that helped me to kind of, you know, just overcome that slightly. Yeah. And you were earning significantly more then. Do you find that made a difference? Well, so what um, what happened with that was that um, initially, mm-hmm. I don't really know how much I can go into, a, into this, but initially the salary that I had been put on mm-hmm. um, ended up, that was just too low for the job that I was doing and it end up, ended up kind of going through a massive overhaul and wow. then I was paid a really, really decent wage. Yeah. Um, and also I had stock options, which is something that I never, ever thought I would have in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, within that specific company, you're also on a bonus structure, which is amazing. Nice. I mean, literally in journalism, it's unheard of, but obviously it's a corporation. So that's how they work. Um, by the time I had left there, I think that was the first time in my working career where I didn't worry about money. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying like, you know... Um, that there were that it wasn't something that I thought about, but I stopped feeling uh sick about it, quite frankly, which is how like I always used to for most of my life, mm-hmm. I have always been uh you know quite substantially in debt across credit cards and debit cards. Um, I always felt like other people managed their money better. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my friends worked in um, finance or medicine, mm-hmm. so they earned a much much higher wage than I did anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that half post job was the first time where I just felt, oh, okay, actually, I can kind of like keep up with the Joneses a little bit here and yeah. not have to like overthink everything, you know, when they want to spend money on something. When I left HuffPost, however, um, I had to work for my... Uh, so I basically decided to go freelance and set my own business up. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't take into account was that none of the issues that I had with money were resolved. So yeah. that includes checking my bank balance, knowing what's coming into it. Be, and if you don't do any of those things, you can't manage your money. So no. you feel out of control around it. And literally, like, when I say months, I mean, like, two months ago, three months ago... Um, you know, a friend of mine just said, look, I am really terrible with money, which I hadn't realized. She said, shall we go to a workshop? So we went to this workshop, um, which I really didn't want to go to. Mm -hmm. That led to me seeing, um, she's called a financial empowerment coach. And honestly, I don't, she, she completely changed, uh, everything. She completely Mm. changed how I view money, you know, the fact that it doesn't have to be this thing that just causes like absolute dread thinking about it. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, you know, things like budgets, she said, we're not going to call it a budget it's a spending plan. Cause that's just a good way of viewing it. And there's still like, some work to go. Like, cause I still do fall back into my old ways of just, yeah. I'd rather not know, yeah. you know, which yeah. is just not very helpful. Um, but I think that that, yeah, for, it's taken a long time, but for the first time, I actually feel slightly in control of it. When you were at Huffington Post mm. and you're doing this very intense job, and we were talking before about being on time and you were managing people, and that feels like quite a big corporate look at journalism almost. Mm. Uh, did you feel that you changed in terms of how you were as a person and how you um, interacted with people? Yes, but I would say a hundred percent it was for the better so what I would say is my attitude especially when I started out in the industry was very kind of 
um, I don't think I quite understood that what you need to get ahead. And by that, I mean, in terms of just being organized, in terms of being on time, um, you know, how important it is to manage upwards, which is, you know, to manage your relationship with your boss and people who are more senior than you. At HuffPost, um, you know, one of the things that the company did really well was to offer training. Mm -hmm. And some people, especially journalists, are very, uh, can be a bit dismissive of it. And if there is a corporation that is offering you free training, Mm -hmm. take it. Because it isn't, it's something that you are lucky to be able to get. And I think by the time that I had gotten to that company, I just wanted to do everything that I could to just improve and to just grow and to learn and to just become a better version of whatever it was that I had, you know, as a journalist or just actually as a manager um, that I had been up until that point. Mm -hmm. And I think that during that job, like I understood how important presentation is. So it doesn't mean that, you know, I had someone telling me what to wear or what to do, but just when you go into a meeting room, like how you present yourself and Mm -hmm. how you talk and so on, and those being important factors. And the fact is, is that, you know, um, all of those things and the way that you conduct yourself really is that you're trying to get leverage to do the thing that you want. So whether that is like a really cool editorial project or it's this, that and the other. And I think some some people feel like it's almost beneath them to do mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost beneath them to, for example, think about the business side of things. The business side of things pays your bills. Like it pay, it's that is what your payroll is made of. Yeah. So I, f- I, I think that to me, I really, it's not that I didn't know that before going into that company, but I had a very sharpened appreciation of that going through that company. And I think also in terms of managing people, just understanding that you can't be everyone's mate. You can be very kind. You can always like say, you know, my door is open, you can talk to me and so on. But in terms of you just, you can't be the person that goes down the pub. Like, you can't be the person that stays really late at a Christmas party. Isn't it nice, though, to be freed from being nice? Like, you know, nice in the sort of, that sense of being girly nice. I don't mean being kind and empathetic. But I just mean, you know, I'm nice. I never say anything contentious. Yes. And to have that hit stripped away. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know... I think because HuffPost was the biggest managing role that I've done, Mm. um, you literally don't have the time for that. So you are dealing with a lot of people at any one time. You're dealing with your daily output of what your news cycle needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then you're being pulled into lots of other meetings that might planning meetings or whatever. And I think that what I have learned from other bosses um, at previous companies Mm -hmm. is that uh, you don't have to be a dick. And so you can be juggling lots of different things, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to be that snappy, angry person. Mm -hmm. And I've had bosses that were snappy, angry people, and I did not like it. And I don't think that you necessarily need to do that. But on the other hand, um, I do think that like my definitely my approach is let's just say what we need to say and get to a possible solution in the shortest possible time. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of... um, so what you've just described to me, I if I was in a meeting with someone and they were like that, that to me is being passive aggressive, and I can't really, um, I can't deal with passive aggressive people mm-hmm. like that. I think if they, if you've got something that you kind of need to come into a meeting to say, just say the thing, and then we can all like it's all out in the open. We can yeah. all talk about it and then move on. Yeah. Because otherwise, I think you never know someone's intention, and I just can't work like that. <laughs> Well, it's leading yeah. in uncertainty, isn't it? When you're managing a lot of people as well, you don't have time to mine 
to get yeah, to the point yeah. of finding an answer. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very, very easy to just say very politely and softly to someone, you know, um, I'm so sorry, but I just don't have the time to quite go through all of this with you right now. Yeah. But let's like schedule in something and we'll go through it later. Yeah. Like literally that's all it needs to be. Can we talk about mm. during that time when you had a bit of extra cash and stuff? What were mm. you spending any amount of it on beauty for you was going to have massages and facials, something <laughs> that was important? I mean, I love massages and facials, um, but I wouldn't I would say that um I have a friend of mine who I think who basically uses treat well, mm-hmm. like she uses like a weekly takeaway. So nice. I think like she has <laughs> yeah. a massage a week. Yeah. Um I would say that with for me, facials and massages are something I always like to get on holiday, weirdly, rather than it's something that I tend to get done at home. Like at yeah. home, it's always a special occasion. So it'll be like my birthday mm-hmm. or if I'm just kind of going through a bit of a very busy period at work, like mm-hmm. it's quite nice to schedule something in. Yeah. With the extra money, what I actually did was, or just having money, was um, I just used some of it to, number one, do some travel, mm-hmm. but number two to actually just buy myself some decent clothes. And by that, it sounds terrible. Like I was just wearing, you know, like a Hessian sack. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, plastic bags around my feet. But no, it was, I think it was just buying clothes Mm -hmm. that weren't going to disintegrate the following year. Yeah. So there were certain shops that I just said, I'm not going to buy from them because they're just sustainably, they're not good mm. because their clothes just don't last. Mm. And I think it was just like buying investment pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have some of those clothes. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Can we talk about Rob? Mm. So your book starts when Rob died by suicide and then it goes on to your grief and your process of uh, I would say recovering but the process of coming to terms with what had happened to you when did you meet him so I met Rob actually 10 years ago Mm -hmm. uh just over 10 years ago um 
And I can't believe it was that. In some ways, it feels like it was so long ago, like a lifetime mm. ago. And then in some ways, it doesn't actually feel like it was that long. Mm. And when I met him, it was after I had come back from a very ill-advised sab- sabbatical where I decided that uh, I was doing a job at News UK. I found it was an awful, awful job. Mm. Um, and I quit to go travelling to India for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent all of my money within three weeks of undertaking that travel Mm. and I'd come back to go freelance and it was when um, we were entering like the worst recession since the 1930s, which was the worst possible time to go freelance. By the time Rob met me, Mm. I... I think I had just gotten my first commission for The Guardian and mm-hmm. I was so excited about it. I mean, it was like a, it was like a milestone for yeah, me, yeah. you know, in my, in my career. Yeah. And I just remember him, like, we were emailing and before we'd properly met, he just, like, he'd actually gone out and gotten a paper, he'd read my piece and yeah. I just remember thinking, oh, you know, he's actually made an effort. And were you set up? You were set up. We were set up, yeah, yeah, yeah through yeah, a mutual yeah. friend, yeah. yeah. But I just remember thinking that... Um, I don't know. Like, I just really liked the fact that he seemed interested. Mm. Um, not in necessarily, I don't know what I looked like or whatever, but that mm. he just genuinely seemed to be quite supportive of what I was doing in terms yeah. of my work. Um, and that first year that we were together, I was freelance mm. um, and continued to be for about a year and a half, very unsuccessfully freelance. But actually, he was also freelance. And when I look back on it, it was really nice to be able to have that time with him. Yeah. You know, where one of us wasn't in an office where literally we lived, I would say, a 10-minute bus ride away from each other. Mm-hmm. The bus would kind of stop outside my house and go to his house. I mean, this it was so... Um, it was so perfect. Mm. I think he called it the love bus or something so creepy. <laughs> and then, yeah. And we just got to spend a lot of time with yeah. each other very quickly. Really getting to know yeah. each other. You write a lot now about mental health and wellness and looking after yourself. And Rob suffered from depression and that came... Mm. You started talking about that early on in your relationship. Was that something that you were conscious of, looking after your mental health and how important it was before Rob? Or was that something that he really brought into the equation? No, I mean, I... If you had asked me about mental well-being, mm. I would have said, I don't know what that is. Um, and when he told me that he had depression, um, and we're talking about, like, proper illness, not, you know, um, I'm going to do meditation. Yeah, not I'm depressed. I yeah, depression. this is, like, yeah. proper, like, chronic depression. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know what that meant either. Yeah. Like, yeah. I didn't know that... He told me he had depression. I didn't really know what it was. Didn't really ask any more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just thanked him for telling me, and then that was it. And I think that even when we were together, um, I didn't really know what depression was. I don't... I couldn't tell you why I didn't look it up more. I think it's mm-hmm. because at the beginning, it didn't really seem to affect our relationship. And then when it started to get worse... Um, yeah, I then I then looked into it a lot, but I think that um, there is the biggest part that I find hard to reconcile now, and I don't tend to have a lot of regrets because I think that things just unfold the way that they are going to, and there's nothing that you can do about that, and so regrets are just wasted energy unless mm-hmm. you're going to fashion them into something that will change or improve your life in the future. Mm-hmm. But I really do regret that that just was not part of my 
spectrum of understanding like that I just didn't know what mental illness was Mm. um didn't really know how to mentally look after myself while Rob was going through all of that stuff so you know which is something that is is a thing that you have to kind of factor in when you are with someone who has Mm. a really serious mental illness um and I just think that when I look back on it and I think about, you know, all of the, just the stupid shit that I had to do in PE, like learning how to like shot put and throw a javelin. And I'm like, you know what would have been a really good lesson? Like yeah. instead of learning how to throw a javelin, like maybe like teaching us about mental well-being. Yeah. It's hard not to be slightly bitter about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because it's, it's so hard when you're around someone who has a mental illness. And I've known some people who have had quite severe mental illnesses and you don't know much about it and then you start reading about it or you start reading around it and you realise that the things you're seeing aren't so anomalous because I think that when you're seeing someone behave in a way Mm. um, partly you can dismiss it as thinking it's just part of them like they're ill but it's the way they are instead of then realising the characteristics they have when they're in that time are very common and actually if you'd have understood that earlier it might have made things easier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what I found. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's very hard to extricate, mm. you know, and I still get this from people that I know talking about their colleagues or, you know, their friends who I, I don't know, mm. which is they'll describe a set of behaviours about this person, but, like, they're assigned to the person. So it's the person... This is the person. They're behaving in this particular way. I can't believe that they're behaving in this way. And I guess because it's not my Mm. friend and I'm looking at it from, you know, a very removed point of view, it's very clear to me what that person is going through. Like, it's very clear why they're probably behaving in that manner. But what's quite difficult is if... I mean, even if you are a healthcare professional, I don't know that this stuff is very, like, any easier when you were talking about personal relationships, right? Yeah, yeah. But... there is nothing that you or I have been taught mm-hmm. in terms of learning how to extricate what is behaviour that is um, caused by an illness yeah. versus what is the person's personal behaviour, yeah. which is why it did take so long yeah. and it had to take hundreds of thousands of people and broadcasts and TV programmes and blah for us to get to this point yeah. where people can kind of maybe understand mental illness is it mm-hmm. should be on par with physical illness in terms of the amount of money that's spent on it and how yep. it's treated. Yep. But because we none of us really have this understanding of, of that and, and how it impacts how a person is and what can you attribute to a person versus the illness, I just think it's just really, really tricky when you're dealing with it yourself. Yeah. It's something that I found, again, sort of podcasts, social media, people talking more has been really helpful mm. because, again, you can reach out to people, talk to people, hear accounts, and it suddenly adds more more information, really. And I think that when I was younger, and I was, say, having panic attacks, which is, you know, mild on the spectrum, but still affected my life a lot, um, I only really had someone like my mum going, oh, well, I've never known anyone who's gone through this, or this is very strange. Now, there, I probably follow 200 people, at least on Instagram, who have very similar things. Mm. And had I known those people when I was 15, it would have changed my life immeasurably. Yeah. So I think that that conversation is a really good one to be having. And it's really good that people are talking about it again now across lots of different platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, on the one hand, you know, there is something to be said for, I think, unless you experience it 
it is quite difficult for people to know what it's like. So mm. when I remember Rob used to say to me that he couldn't go to the supermarket or would have a panic attack while he was there or would just find things really hard, like opening his mail. Yeah. I remember at the time thinking, I don't understand that. Like, how can someone not open their mail? Mm-hmm. Now that I've read accounts of what depression is like and can affect you, and also after he passed away, have experienced it myself, mm-hmm. I can totally understand how something like, I don't know, just going to the shop to get milk or opening your mail is like a gargantuan task. Yeah. It's so difficult to try and understand that when it hasn't been within your you know, peripheral vision of experience or whatever it is. And I yeah. completely agree with you. In that I just think, you know, sometimes, like, God, there are some amazing people on Twitter Mm. and they, and this is their thing, right? And they tweet out about, like, mental health and how it affects them and their experience of it. And the amount of shit that these people sometimes get from other people, I cannot believe Mm. that, I I mean, I can believe it because I've obviously seen these, like, unbelievably disgusting responses to... Uh, a very, you know, personal and honest tweet that someone Mm -hmm. has put out there about their mental health. But I have such admiration for the fact that they keep going, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that they get this kind of flack and they get this feedback from trolls that they keep going because Mm -hmm. it immeasurably does help Mm -hmm. other people, I think. When you were writing this book, which, I mean, so the thing I found the most about it is that I said this to you before we started, but it's so honest and it feels Mm -hmm. like a real insight into something that I've not experienced. But like when I was reading it, my heart was breaking. There are parts when you talk about your perception of love and how it changed and your perception of, you know, what you should be doing with your life and how you spend your time. And I was wondering for you, how committing something so honest to paper and then sending it out into the world has (laughs) felt because you don't skirt around things. So... (laughs) This seems to be a common piece of feedback that I get. And and there is part of me that thinks, oh, you know, should I not <laughs> should I not say that stuff? Or I don't really know, um, you know, is that kind of like advice around maybe I shouldn't say certain things. But the way that I view it is that I don't really know any other way of being. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that I'm very honest about is the stuff that I'm okay with being out there. So if yeah. someone wants to talk to me about it or pull me up on it, then I can I can do that. And yeah. there is also, I guess, you will only see what I am putting out there. You are not necessarily... I'm not saying that I have this, like, emotional, like, Monica Geller cupboard of crap that I've just stuffed in there that no one ever will see and, you know, that that's this hidden part of me. Actually, mostly of what you see is what you get. But there are memories of Rob. There are memories of our life together... There are parts of who I am as a person that are not in that book and Mm. they don't need to be in that book Mm. and they can just be for me. But the fact is is that you're not going to know what those are because they're not in the book. With regards to, I guess, being honest about your life, I do wonder how much of it is a reaction to the fact that when Rob and I were married and he was... Um, you know, really struggling with recovery um, because he also struggled with addiction. And for a big chunk of our lives, um, you know, we were kind of handling it mostly on our own and people didn't really know 
what was going on and they definitely did not know what was going on you know at work so at work I had to turn up and be presentable and do this and do that and have a clear head knowing that there was this you know complete tornado of chaos at home um and that well has run dry Mm -hmm. like I cannot even if I was saying something to you that I knew was kind of not deceitful, but it wasn't really the full truth. Mm. It would make me feel very uncomfortable. Mm. So, um, so I think that yes, it is very honest. Yes, it is. That is that entire book is supposed to actually be an exploration of thought around you know the bigger things around love and so on. Um, but that is the only way I currently know how to be. Mm-hmm. Whether or not I wake up in you know twenty to thirty years time. Very unlikely, because I just, the ratio of me not giving a shit about things only seems to increase the older I get. So I just think that that is what I'm comfortable with doing. Mm. And the way that that book is written is writing that I'm really proud of. It is really hard to keep the stuff that, um, you know, to keep difficult things locked Mm. up inside of you. Mm. And I totally get that. And Mm. I understand why so many people do it, having been one of those people, because... It protects you from other people's reactions um, and it just means that you can kind of just get on with your life without having to really always carry this or sift through this the the emotions that come up with it. Mm. But I also know that comparatively being open and honest about this kind of, especially things that like define you to such a huge degree that the relief is palpable, that actually more often than not, you are most likely going, yes, you might get people that don't necessarily always say the right thing, but actually you mostly will say, get people that will either say to you, hey, you know what, I've been through something similar. It makes you feel less alone. Mm. Um, And I just, I don't know. I just, I think that that for me is an actual relief Mm. from having to always hide, which is what I always had to do. I would say that the kind of the two years after Rob passed away, if you saw me at work, Mm -hmm. you would like I was the most successful that I have ever been at work during those two years. And I also wrote a book during that time. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at it from that outset, like if you saw like how I would dress my Mm -hmm. makeup, this, that and the other, um, you would not necessarily, unless you really looked at my eyes, like you would not necessarily be able to tell what was happening. Right. In terms of, I think my personal life, it just became very small. Mm -hmm. Like it became very, um, it just basically went into survival mode. So Mm -hmm. it was just literally eat, sleep, uh, go to work, sometimes hang out with friends and family. And then that was it. Yeah. It was just, I think, subsisting to be Mm -hmm. honest. And just kind of getting through things. And then I think, um, for me, it was a couple of things in that, you know, at work, um, I had just reached a stage of just burning out in that, you know, that last year, especially of being in, in the in that particular workplace was just uh, working on my first book and also just doing a fairly full on day job was just that I hadn't really had very much time off and I had just you know, completely reached the end of my road with, Mm. with that and hadn't had really much time to stop. Um, but also like it, it ran alongside the fact that as I was, you know, trying new things and inching my way into, for example, things like dating, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd be asked things like, Oh, um, 
you know, things like, and this is in the book, like a friend of mine said, oh, you know, when do you think you might want to get into a relationship? And I'm just like, what the fuck does that even mean? Mm. Like, you know, it implies that I have control over this stuff. I think that when I started dating people, if, if I saw them for like more than one date, it would kind of be this like whole, like there was all this emphasis you know, on the fact that it could be something special or promising. And I was just trying to figure stuff out. I was like, the fact that I'm, like, dating at all, really, it, mm-hmm. I, like, I haven't figured out what this is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really, like, I know that that's part of the whole social interaction of things, mm-hmm. but I didn't really like the fact that more importance was being placed on it than it necessarily needed to be. And so I think those things where I just thought, hang on a minute, but what actually do I want from all of this? Mm. And then realise that I didn't really have an idea mm-hmm. to any or an answer to any of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't particularly feel like I could get it in London uh, or being surrounded by the same thing day after day. And that for me, I think was, yeah, that definitely was a turning point. Yeah. You have a bit yeah. of a kickback as well when people are saying that um, to you, where you go, well, I decided to get closer to my parents and to yeah. honour other kinds of love instead of just... Yeah plowing energy into the idea of romantic love yeah um someone said this to me and I don't know that my mom knows how to take it Mm. but someone said to me that it's impossible to read it and not fall in love with my parents Mm. and I think that um that is something that I didn't it wasn't an intention but I'm glad that that's how it comes across and Mm. another friend also said that that there's there's a couple of chapters where they're mentioned quite um in quite detail a lot of detail and and our family history Mm. and she said you know actually it reminded me that I haven't ever really sat down with my parents and asked them these questions and it shouldn't have to take a funeral to have to then have those conversations about you know after that person has gone yeah and I just was like over the moon because I just said that is exactly it I said that is exactly what I would want someone to take away from it which is that you know your parents if you are lucky enough to have um, good parents or a good relationship with um, both of them or one of them mm-hmm. is that um, they are so much more than I think that we give them credit for usually mm. and I think that me in particular is that yeah I just felt in- fell into this really lazy relationship with them where you know we just kind of go like lump about the house a bit um, you know, maybe drink some wine if I was over there and mm-hmm. then just kind of mooch on back and not really have spent much time with them. And I remember like my dad used to say, you know, could we turn the TV off and have a chat and just kind of do this really like Kevin and Perry like sigh and go, oh, oh my God. And then, and then it changed. It just changed. And so I just got to know him by himself a bit better. I got mm-hmm. to know my mom a bit better and the entire relationship changed like yeah. with both of them. And that, I have to say, I just remember thinking, you know, um, I know that it's a default that your parents are always supposed to love you and vice versa. But I think that there is um, there is an inertia that tends to happen with those relationships because you've just had them for so long. And I think what was really important with this book was turning that into something that was just quite an active thing. Mm hmm. Um, and that definitely for me, like that is like, I'm seeing them tomorrow, um, you know, and spending a couple of days with them mm-hmm. and I'm genuinely really looking forward to just catching up with them and, and having a laugh with them and spending time yeah, with them. Yeah. On your fridge, you have a certificate for bench press it. <laughs> 
squat, bench. Oh, yeah. What is that? So that is my deadly, um, that is my powerlifting competition. Right. Powerlifting is something that I've only done. Um, I only took up last end of last year. Okay. Um, what made you start? <laughs> so I. I've dabbled with weightlifting for the last couple of years mm-hmm. because I wanted to, I just wanted to be able to lift my own luggage and okay. just, practical. Yeah, like yeah. move furniture around and just basically do things where I just didn't have to call up a guy to do it. I just yeah. really didn't want to. So last year, this, my local gym said, by the way, we're doing powerlifting and, um, it's just like a mini competition to see if you like it. and But we're really trying to get women to join. Okay. And I just remember at the time, like, telling the guy to, like, go away. I just <laughs> thought, I was like, this is really not my thing. I just, it just sounds really scary. Were you quite fit before that? I was, yeah. I, I mean, I would say that fitness is something I've always, well, not uh, always, but for the last few years, it's definitely mm-hmm. something I've been increasingly really into. And I just think for, like, my mental state of mind, it is mm-hmm. so important. Yeah. Um but this competition, I just remember saying to my personal trainer, by the way, this guy wants me to sign up yeah. to this competition. It sounds like completely stupid. And he yeah. said, actually, I am a professional powerlifter. Okay. So I think you should go for it. And we'll, And he just said, just have some fun with it and it will focus your training and so on. And I, yeah, like I started training for it. It's powerlifting is basically three different lifts. It's mm-hmm. deadlift, bench and squat. You the whole purpose is to try and lift the heaviest amount that you can in each of those lifts. Oh my god! Yeah. It was the most fun. I think I've really? I never ever honestly. I never used to be sporty at school. Okay. Never really liked um, being part of a team or any of that kind of stuff. I used to be really crap at everything, and this was just unbelievable fun right. because basically you're. Yes, it's a competition, and yes, you know, overall you are competing with other people, but generally it's more to see how much you personally can outdo your own records. Yeah. Competition um, with yourself. Yeah, yeah, so I did like a proper competition at the end of March this oh, year. Okay. It was, honestly, it like, it was just the best, one of the best things I think I've ever done. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I dread squats so intensely. I would recommend it. I wanted to ask you some questions about like where you are now um, with a few things. So firstly, food and diet. Um, Are you someone who cooks a lot? Do you place as much importance on what you put in your body? And do you have a way of eating that safeguards your health? Health? Um, Yes and no. In that, um, yes, I always do cook. Mm -hmm. Um, I take after my mother in that way. And I like to make things from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really, yeah. And it doesn't, to be honest, it doesn't really matter how tired I am. There is something that I can kind of cobble together and that's just my preference. So you prefer to cook all your meals? I'd prefer to, yeah, where possible. Um, so I would just say that, um, with regards to what I choose to put into my body uh, for health, for purposes of being healthy, Mm. is that it's twofold in that number one, um, I have, gradually changed the way that I eat over the years in terms of just a lot more veg and fruit and um and but I think that definitely in the last six months I have changed certain parts of how I eat Mm -hmm. to fuel my training when I don't train like Mm -hmm. so at the moment I'm training for a competition which is in June um I would eat in a particular way Mm Um, so I would eat in a macros based way. That's only something I've started doing recently. Once that competition is over, I will not be eating that way. Okay. 
but generally what I prefer to do is um, uh, more intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And that to me, because I've tried doing that last year and I think that that has helped me have probably the healthiest relationship that I've had with food. Not that it was like, it wasn't that it was like really bad before. It's just, you know, the usual stuff, like Mm. not trying to see food as like, you know, reward and uh, good and bad foods and all of that stuff. The time when I realised how far all the intuitive stuff um, had got me, though, was at Christmas, Mm. where I just didn't really... um, I don't know. I just kind of ate, like, how I would normally eat, you Mm. know? I didn't feel the need to, like, mainline, like, two boxes of after eights. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't because, like, I think my dad... Someone said to me, oh, but you're being really good. And I said, no, it's not... Firstly, it's not being really good. Mm. Let's, like, let's remove that language from our vocabulary. But I said, it's not the way, when you phrase it like that, you're making out like I'm sitting here wanting it and and not allowing myself Mm. to have it. Mm. I don't like that. So as in, I don't like that approach to food. Mm. If I want to have something, I know that inevitably I will gorge myself and have it if I don't at least like, you know, kind of fulfill that need at that point in time. So there's no point like angsting over it. So I just said, actually, that entire work around that means that I don't feel the need to totally binge on chocolate because I've kind of allowed myself chocolate throughout whatever the like weeks of you know the weeks of that have just gone I, I I can't deny this like a few years ago I was I totally bought into all of the clean eating shit mm. in terms of like um you know oh if I have this then that means that my diet is good and <laughs> all of that stuff and actually like the more I kind of look into it and the more I go into shops and I see how food is packaged to make it more enticing to people when actually once you know at least the bare minimum of nutrition, you know how bollocks that actually is. I just think, oh no, I'm not going anywhere near that. Yeah. Like if some, if a, if a company or if a product has to slap on certain labels, like, I'm sorry, but the protein one like really cracks me up every time. Protein what? Like, so when things are, 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 um, you know, uh, described as being protein, like something right. like yogurt. Like yeah. yogurt has a lot of protein in it anyway, but yeah. you don't need to like put it in like massive letters on it. Yeah. Or like when rice is like, sorry, when rice is like gluten free, it's like yes, everyone shouldn't. Rice is gluten free because that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah. But it's just that kind of whole branding and packaging around it. I just yeah, I've got a bit of an eye roll about it. There is so much shorthand around mm-hmm. nutrition that is just by the time it has actually reached you know, uh, a magazine or um, whatever it might be, it is so oversimplified. And I I get it because like in people in their day-to-day lives don't have the knowledge or the time to Mm -hmm. kind of sift through all of this nutritional information. But what I do have a problem with is when stuff (coughs) is just kind of sold as this very simplistic solution to something rather than actually getting people to think about what might be in their food. Skincare. Yes. Have you always had good skin, relatively well-behaved mm. skin? No, I have a... It's gotten better in the last couple of years, but my skin and I have always had a love-hate relationship mm. in that the minute... I know that this is childish, but the minute like my skin looks clear and someone will say, oh, you've got really nice skin, I swear it's like my skin has like ears all over it. It <laughs> just <laughs> sprouts into yeah. the world's biggest pimple. I get that. Yeah. So... I, I, and I know that there are some people that will never experience breakouts. Um, I didn't really have bad skin as a teenager, mm-hmm. but I did get adult acne in my late twenties. Okay. 
Um, however, it is very hard to extricate because my diet was unbelievably bad at that time. Okay. Um, just drank way too much. Um, the, just the type of food that I was eating. When I look back on it, I'm like, oh yeah, it's not rocket science. Like I understand yeah. why I would get breakouts. Mm. The acne obviously was like different to just having like random spots on my face. Like that, that actually really upset me. Like really, really upset me. And I think that... I'd never really gotten, had a point where I didn't feel like I could leave the house. Did you cover it? I did, but I also just tried everything that I could possibly try and it just didn't seem to work. And I just remember thinking, um, you know, like I had like a relative of mine who like made fun of it and Mm -hmm. it just made me feel really awful. And then I think for me, the last thing I tried was going on the pill and then that just kind of like fixed it. Right. So these days my skin is very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tend to break out as much as it used to. What about makeup? What are this, what what are the things you use now? Um, I have really drilled my makeup down to, like, I know very much what I like and what works for me when I'm doing my own makeup. So I will either, um, go sort of heavier on the eyes. So Mm -hmm. I'll either have, um, eyeliner on, um, if it's kind of like maybe an all day thing, I might put a bit more shadow on to just like make it stick for a bit longer. This is liquid eyeliner. Uh, liquid eyeliner, but like pencil on the inside right. and a bit of um, eyeshadow with an angle brush just to kind of seal it in on top of it. Ooh, um, three step. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then just like mascara, bit of brow pencil, and then yeah. I might use quite a nude lipstick and then maybe a little bit of blush. And are any of those products that if you lost your makeup bag and you had to replace yeah. stuff, say at Boots, that you would say, no, I absolutely have to get this particular brand and this particular one? The thing that I would say that I can't replace with different brands mm. is my... So I don't... I It's foundation. Yeah. So I use... Um, Fenty have a foundation mm-hmm. stick. Yeah. I absolutely adore Fenty and I wish that they did more stuff. Um, and what I will do is on heavier days, I'll use that foundation stick and then use a little bit of a tinted moisturizer on top uh, because that just makes it look a bit dewier. Um, on most days, I'm, I'll just use concealer and mm-hmm. basically that mix of tinted moisturizer. So I use two tinted moisturizers. Right. One is NARS and one is Laura Mercier because I can't yeah. get the right shade. Um, tell me about perfume. At the moment, my favorite one is Jo Malone's Black Cedarwood. Yeah. I honestly can't get enough of it. It's mm-hmm. exactly what I want to smell like. Yeah. Um, but I do like quite masculine fragrances and I yeah. love, like, I don't know what this really says, but I also like really masculine fragrances on men. Like men who have good cologne and aftershave is just I am mm. with you, and sometimes I think it makes me a bad person because I'm like, I want a man who smells a bit like yes, an arse. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, not an arse. I mean, like, like he would be an arse. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like a kind yeah. of a whatever Don Draper would smell like. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Someone who yeah. works in advertising and drinks martinis. Yes, is the, is the kind of smell. Yeah, of yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, are you quite? With perfume, are you, you know, you said you, you want to smell of it and you can't get enough of it. Mm. Are you someone who'll do the whole like mist it and walk through it, or are you just a kind of all over? Do you know, I love Queer Eye and I do see them do that. <laughs> I just can't do that. I no. just, I like it all over. Yeah. I just can't do the misting walking through it. No, thing. I mean, I, I like, no. I, I don't know how many, I must spray myself at least 15 mm. times. Sometimes I, I think I smell massively overpowering, but I love it on my clothes. And my yeah, skin, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Like, I really want people to get sense of it i mean i had a i'm sure that everyone had a teacher like this but like my headmistress when i was at secondary school you kind of you 
you kind of smelled her before you saw her. Like, yeah. as in, she yeah. had such an overpowering fragrance mm-hmm. that it was like, that was her signature thing. But now I wonder how much of that stuff she had to spray for it to be to that. that overpowering. You kind of lose the smell of it. There's, there's one perfume that my sister and I, so my mm. sister works at my dad's restaurant, which has a bar. And sometimes people come into the bar and they'll smell yeah. bad or there'll be a bad smell. And we have this one perfume that is so overpowering. One squirt of it, I mean, would fill this entire <laughs> room, right? It's called Odas Noir. I can't yeah. remember who makes it. But one squirt of Odas Noir is enough to really get rid of so if anyone comes mm. in they stink or anyone farts my sister gets that the oh, no. and it completely the whole bar everyone in the bar's like what's that smell and it's okay. one squirt so, nice yeah okay. so maybe she had like a version of that you know maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah final question is about relaxation and stress and how you switch off other than by lifting your body weight and furniture <laughs> um how, how do you what, what do you do to get your zen back when it's when you're ruffled um i mean the thing is you're catching me at a point where i feel like my routine is out of whack mm. and i need to reclaim that because i do feel that routine in all of these things is really important mm. i think if you sporadically do meditation or walks or whatever when you are super stressed out, I just don't think it has quite an impact yeah. um, as when you cumulatively, <laughs> cumulatively do it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it is definitely before bedtime, you know, just even if it's like 10 minutes on a timer of um, just being quite quiet and breathing, it's kind of going maybe for a walk at lunchtime because I work from home. It can be um, a really bad habit of mine to not leave the house yeah. because I kind of feel like I've got too much work to do. Um, it definitely like or just some form of being outdoors I think Um, I mean I'd love to I want to be the kind of person that says yoga I just don't do it often enough Mm -hmm. you know I um, I do it maybe once a week do you like it when you do it I love it this is my issue I love it when I do it Mm -hmm. and I love how I feel I just cannot work out why I can't seem to make it stick Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Puna. I'll be joined next week by a new guest. So if you'd like that to slide onto whichever device you listen to podcasts on, please do remember to subscribe. And I would urge you to rate and review the episode if you're so inclined. See you next week. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com